0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I hope you all had your tea or coffee and you're awake. Otherwise, I hope this exciting lecture is going to wake you up. Can you all hear me? Yeah, Okay. So uh, for those of you who weren't there in the second lecture, I just want to briefly introduce myself. My name is Martin Schwamder. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Cell Biology and Neuroscience that's over in the Nelson Labs building. And previously, uh, in the second lecture, we talked about protein structure and function. Um, But today, we're going to cover parts of uh, chapter 20 uh, of the book Molecular Cell Biology uh, by Lodish et al., which deals with the process of how cells become integrated into tissues. And of course, I would like to encourage you again to interrupt me during the lecture. If you have any questions, if anything is unclear, just raise your hand. So it was the great Greek philosopher Aristotle who put forward the concept that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So what does that mean? It basically means, or basically defines, the term of synergy, which is a concept that if you um, that things that work together can usually accomplish more than if you sum up each individual, uh, each contribution that an individual makes. And so basically it defines uh, teamwork. And you can see that here, that's exactly what these penguins do when they uh, basically huddle together in a group to protect themselves from hypothermia, OK? But this concept also applies to uh, very complex biological systems, uh, starting, all the level, oh, starting all the way from cellular level um, all the way to uh, very complex organisms. <coughs> So, for example, here you can see cells that uh, form a sheet of cells, they aggregate together, and in this way, cells can form tissues, and tissues in turn can form uh, organs. So, speaking about tissues, there are four different groups of tissues, and all of the pre meds amongst you will probably. Have to look at a lot of these histological sections. So the first group here comprises the uh, is the muscular tissue, and as you all know, in muscle you have these syncytial fibers, meaning these are multinucleated muscle fibers, and they align with one another so they can exert contractile force. And then on the right hand here you have a very uh, common tissue, which are uh, which are the epithelial tissues, and these are essentially uh, tightly packed sheets of cells, as you can see up here. Okay, now these epithelial tissues they form many of the external but also internal surfaces of organs. So for example, you have epithelia in the gastrointestinal tract or in the lungs. Um, and as I said, they also form the external surface um, of the entire organism. Just think of the epithelia of the skin. And these epiphilia act as selective permeability barriers. You can see how these cells essentially form the barrier that shields the outside from the inside. Um, So in this way, they basically allow compartments to form, which is important if you want to generate an organ. So you want to keep things separate in the body so that, for example, digestion in the stomach can occur whilst blood is flowing through blood vessels, right? You don't want the two things to mix. Now, here on the left side, we have the connective tissue, and the connective tissues primarily are uh, located underneath uh, such epithelial tissues. And they basically bind these epithelia to other tissues and therefore contribute to the formation of organs. And by the way, blood is also considered connective tissue. Um, It doesn't seem logical, but essentially it also connects different organs because it transports nutrients from one place in the body to others. So it falls in the same category. And of course you're all familiar with nervous tissue, which is basically comprised of uh, neurons which uh, transmit electrical signals, and then the glial cells, or neural glial cells as we call them, uh, which assist in this process. Now, different types of tissues can, again, be organized into organs. Just think of the the heart. In the heart, you basically find all these three uh, tissues. uh, Find three of these tissues, like muscular tissue, uh, nerve cells, and, of course, blood vessels as well. Now, assembling these kind of tissues comes at a physiological cost. But there's a huge uh, evolutionary uh, benefit for uh, multicellular organisms if they have tissues, because that basically allows them to thrive in different environments. So next, I want to talk about the process um, of how these tissues assemble and what are exactly the molecules that, that help cells assemble into these tissues. And these are so-called adhesion molecules. Now, here on the left side, you see basically a section, a histological section, through uh, the small intestine, which has been stained with a chemical dye called HME. And you don't need to know right now what that is. But essentially, you see that at the surface of, the, of this uh, uh, column of these, of these uh, extensions, you have this columnar epithelium. Okay, So the surface here is an epithelium. And that's important because it provides a barrier from the lumen of the intestine towards basically the blood vessels, which sit on the lower end of the epithelium. Now on the right, basically you can see. Can you actually see it? <laughs> it's a little dark, but you can see pretty much an adjacent section, um, which shows more or less the same morphology. Um, and here, this section has been immunolabeled, so that means people used antibodies specific to two proteins here, claudin 4 and claudin 2, to uh, prepare this immunofluorescence staining of this tissue section. Okay. And you can see very nicely how Claudin-4 localizes to the spaces between cells, basically to the junctions, where these cells connect to each other. So the Claudins are proteins which belong to the family of so-called tight junctional proteins. And we'll talk more about these uh, tight junctions in just a minute. Um, You can see another uh, feature of these adhesion molecules in the section, namely that they are organized in a spatially controlled manner, right? You see claudin at the very surface of this epithelium and then claudin 2 at the basal part. And that's because they serve different functions at these places. For example, claudin 2 here in the crypts of the epithelium um, it regulates the transport of uh, cations such as calcium, whereas uh, claudin 4 at the surface basically is thought to provide. Um, a barrier uh, for the diffusion of uh, cations. So we'll now zoom more into this tissue and look at the different types of cell junctions that we can find here, and that also exist in other tissue types, not just epithelia, for example. Um, so the molecules that assemble these tissues are the cell adhesion molecules. and. Essentially, what you see here on the right side is a cartoon of, the, of this epithelium, which was depicted on the previous slide. <coughs> and it shows very nicely um, a few important characteristics of epithelia. So the first characteristic is that these epithelia are polarized. Does anyone know what polarized means in this context? Yeah. Um, the top is made of different modules on the bottom, basically. Yeah, exactly. So these epiphilia are polarized, which means they are morphologically different, means structurally. So you see that they make these microvilli at the top, right? At the bottom, they're flat, so they're different. They have different sides, an apical side, top side, and a basal portion. So they're polarized. And they're not only polarized at a structural level, but as you just saw before, they also have molecules that differ between the apical side and the basal portion. Um, so the, the apical side has these microvilla-like structures. These are projections filled with F-actin, filamentous actin. And then at the base, they sit on this uh, basal lamina, OK? And this basal lamina is essentially um, a dense meshwork of extracellular matrix proteins. So we'll talk more about these, actually a lot more about these extracellular matrix proteins in my next lecture. Um, and you can see that this extracellular matrix here, it actually has different layers. You see this uh, thin, dense sheet of uh, extracell matrix proteins, the basal lamina. And then you have underneath the so-called connective tissue, which basically contains uh, connective fibers, such as collagen. Um, so what happens here is, and what's actually not shown in this picture is that you also have blood vessels that run through this connective tissue. So essentially, nutrients can be taken up from the intestinal lumen, and they're transported through the cell, and then they are carried on by uh, the blood. All right. Oh, too fast. So. We'll talk about the junctions that occur in um, these epithelial tissues, and they can be grouped into three different classes, which are shown here. Um, the very top, we have the occluding junctions. Um, as the name implies, they basically occlude or prevent the diffusion of uh, substances from one side of the epithelium to the other side. And we'll talk about all these junctions in more detail uh, uh, during the lecture. And so essentially, They prevent diffusion of substances through uh, the intercellular spaces, so basically the gap between the cells. All right, you can see here the tight junctions up there. They basically seal off this space. Um, Then we have another class of junctions, which are the so-called gap junctions. And as the name implies here, they basically form pores and allow the diffusion of ions between cells. So communication, and um, here we have those tight junctions that seal off these spaces. And then we have a large third group of proteins, of of junctions, uh, the so-called anchoring junctions. And they mediate both cell-cell adhesions, which of course occur between cells, shown here, and then we have cell-matrix adhesions, which occur here, because we have the exocell matrix underneath the epithelial sheet, and so you need to somehow glue these cells to um, the exocell matrix. Um, so it's very important that you know that there are cellular receptors, and we we'll talk about these receptors in a minute, that uh, basically cluster at these adherent junctions, and they also connect to the cytoskeleton inside the cell. So this is what holds these junctions in place and also fortifies the connections between the cells and between the cells and the extracellular matrix mm-hmm. underneath. Um, so, the cell-cell adherence junctions shown here, uh, sorry, the, the anchoring junctions uh, between cells are formed by so-called adherence junctions, which are shown here. And then you can see that we also have another type of uh, cell-cell junction, which is formed by so-called desmosomes. And we'll talk about, about these structures in a minute. And then we have these cell matrix adhesions, the so-called focal adhesions. And you actually don't—they are not shown here in, in this cartoon—but um, they basically occur when a cell, for example, migrates over a, a substrate of extracellular matrix and get these focal adhesions. Um, and then also, cell matrix interactions are formed by these hemidesmosomes, which, as you can see, basically glue these epithelial cells to, um, to the underlying uh, extracellular matrix in the basal lamina. Do you have any questions so far? Oh, good. All right. Um, so before we continue talking about the molecules, I just want to give you a brief overview because um, there are many different types of epithelia um, that we find in the body, and they're shown on this slide here. And just again, as a reminder for all the pre-meds. You should know that every epithelial cell has basically an apical surface, which is on the top, a lateral surface, which is the side, and then a basal surface, which is at the base, so at the, at the bottom of it. So, the first type of epithelium shown here at the top is exactly the epithelium that we've been talking about. Uh, it's a simple columnar epithelium, and again, these epithelia line the lumen uh, of. At the surface of the intestine, um, where they absorb nutrients. And then we also have this epithelium, for example, in the stomach, where these cells are involved in the secretion of uh, hydrochloric acid. Um, and as you can see, the cells are again attached to this basal lamina, which sits on top of the connective tissue. Then we have a different type of epithelium here, which is the simple squamous epithelium. See, it's made of uh, sheets of very thin cells. And basically, you find these um, type of so-called endothelial cells in uh, blood vessels. Okay. And then we have the transitional epithelia, which consists of different types of cells, and stratified squamous epithelium, which you find mainly at surfaces, for example, in the mouth. And I really don't, you don't need to remember all the details of these epithelia. What I do want you to remember is that they all have in common that there's basically a sheet of of similar types of cells, and they're all attached to the basal lamina, okay, and then you have the connective tissue underneath. Okay. Now, in order to generate really strong adhesions, we need molecules that connect these cells. also, connect them to the extracell matrix. So, for this, we have specific adhesion molecules which are concentrated at these junctions. So, here the slide basically shows you all these uh, different types of junctions and some of the adhesion molecules that you find there. Um, so, let's start on the upper right with the uh, cell cell adhesions. Essentially, here you have junctions where cells are directly adhere to one another, which are formed by cell adhesion molecules. And I just want to point out that you see that they have these extracellular domains and then a short, basically, domain that spans through the plasma membrane. And then inside the cell, they usually have a short cytoplasmic domain, which uh, in one way or another is connected to uh, the cytoskeleton. And it can be connected to the actin cytoskeleton or to intermediate filament. Um, And then, at the bottom here, you have so-called cell matrix adhesions, okay? And you see that in this case, we call the molecules that connect to the matrix adhesion receptors. Because you immediately can notice the difference that here you have basically the same class of molecules that form these connections with each other. Whereas here, a receptor uh, binds to a ligand, which in this case is the extracellular matrix. And um, the connection inside the cell to the actin cytoskeleton is mediated by so-called adapter proteins. And we'll talk a little bit more about these adapters uh, more towards the end of the lecture. So aggregates of these kind of cell adhesion molecules, they form all the different types of junctions, including the tight junctions and the gap junctions. So let's have a closer look at the first type of junction, the occluding junction, or tight junction. And essentially, these tight junctions are located up here, as we said earlier, between the cells. And they seal off the, the gap between these epithelial cells. And you can see, if you, if you look at them at high, mag, high magnification, you basically see that they're small protein particles that align with one another. Um, and you see these particles on either side of the cell, okay? Now these tight junctions have not just uh, one role, but they actually have two roles. So one is to prevent diffusion of macromolecules across the epiphilia. And then the second function is actually to maintain the polarity of the cell. Um, So in this case, it is not the structure polarity, but it's actually the molecular polarity meaning the molecules that you would find up here at the apical surface, for example in the, in the plasma membrane, are very different from the molecules that you find in the membranes at the base of the epithelium. And using a mechanism that is still kind of unknown, these tight junctions basically prevent the free diffusion of molecules that sit in the plasma membrane. Uh, such as glycoproteins, meaning proteins with sh- that have sugar attached, or glycolipids, they prevent the f- diffusion from apical to basal and vice versa. Okay, so they keep them separate in these two separate compartments, apical and basal. And this way they maintain the polarity of the cell. All right, now here you can see a uh, Uh, so to say, real-life picture. is actually a freeze fracture preparation of a tight junctional zone in the intestinal epithelial cells. And you can see how these tight junctions are just located beneath uh, the microvilli, which are up here. And they appear as such a honeycomb pattern, all right? And on the right, then, you see a higher magnification EM picture of the tight junction. And you can see where the membrane is brought into very close approximation by these uh, tight junction particles. right? That's shown by the arrowheads here. And essentially, if you were to to turn this uh, image by 90 degrees, you can easily imagine how this would bring about such a honeycomb pattern. So this is probably better illustrated in this cartoon here, which shows again how these proteins um, are organized in rows to form the tight junctions. And they also form these vertical rows. So if you look at them from the side, it appears as a honeycomb uh, pattern. So what are the molecules that form these tight junctions? Um, they are shown on this slide here. So essentially, we have one large group of proteins that have uh, four so-called transmembrane domains. And again, if anything is unclear, just interrupt me. Um, but essentially, they have four membrane-spanning tom- domains. These are the occludins, the claudins, and there's another class, the tricellulins, which are not shown in this picture here. Um, and these tricellulins also have a four transmembrane domain uh, topology. Now tricellulin is very particular because you find it mainly at uh, junctions where you have three cells that connect to each other. That's where the name comes from. (coughs) Okay, so then there's a third group of junction adhesion molecules also called um, JAM and you see that JAM has a in contrast to these proteins, has just a single transmembrane domain. And it has a very large extracell domain. And I want to point out that it is these extracell domains uh, in occludin, claudin, and jam that actually can bridge the gap between the cells and form these very uh, tight connections. And basically they form these connections with the same protein on the other cell. So occludin would pair with occludin, claudin would pair with claudin, et cetera. And this then creates a very tight seal. So inside the cell, you can see that they have these cytoplasmic domains, which then are connected via adapter proteins to the cytoskeleton. And that helps to basically stabilize these tight t- junctions. Now, this picture essentially uh, summarizes, again, the two roles that these tight junctions play. Uh, in epithelial cells, but also other tissues, uh, other cell types. Um, Essentially, they prevent the diffusion of macromolecules across the sheet through um, what's called the paracellular pathway, so basically through these gaps, and the second role that they play is to basically maintain the polarization of the tissue, separating the apical membrane of set, uh, from the basolateral membrane and preventing the diffusion of uh, these macromolecules, such as glycolipids and um, glycoproteins, actually, from apical to basal, and vice versa. Okay. Now, scientists have done experiments to... Yes? Um, what proteins in protein particles Is that the cytoskeleton, or is that the... You mean what stabilizes them? I'm sorry. Um, well, in like the diary two slides before, you yeah, have the rows of protein particles. Yeah. Well, that, uh, what part of the uh, depisode forms that or is that the cytoskeleton? Uh, no, what you can see here are the actual um, tight junction proteins, so basically the transmembrane proteins that I just listed. So these are the visible particles here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what scientists did in this experiment, they basically used a a hydrophilic dye and they injected it into an epithelium, namely the epithelium of the pancreas. Okay? And then they fixed the tissue, and what you can see is that this dye, which was injected at the basal portion of this epithelium, diffused through the intercellular gap only until, only up to, to the tight junction. Okay? So this essentially proved that these tight junctions prevent the free diffusion of molecules through this gap. Um, researchers also often use a tissue culture model, which is shown in this cartoon. Um, essentially what you have here is a so-called um, cell monolayer. Uh, that consists of uh, epithelial cells. And usually people use a particular type of cell, which is called the Mardin-Darby canine kidney, or MDCK cells. Maybe some of you have worked with MDCK cells. It's a very common model to study epithelia. And what happens if you plate these cells on a porous filter, uh, they basically will line up with one another. They form adhesions, adhesive contacts, and they very efficiently uh, seal off um, the apical part from the basal part, and they form a monolayer so it 's important that they form a monolayer because in this way you can very nicely study uh, the kinetics of diffusion from the apical part to the basal part so what what People do, or pharmaceutical companies do, is they essentially uh, would have uh, this apical medium here above the cells and a basal medium below, and then they place um, a compound or a drug in one of these compartments, and they measure how quickly the drug is going to diffuse through the epithelium. Okay, um, and that is very important. <coughs> Does anybody know where that could play a role in the body or? Why do we want to study that? Um, effective out um, uh, dose you have to give for an effective dose or lethal dose? Yes, exactly. If it diffuses quickly, uh have to give less of it, uh, I guess, like, antibiotic or whatever, because it just cross faster, so less is needed. Very good, yeah. So it, it really is important that we can study um, the pharmacokinetics. So how quickly can the drug becomes a drug available to a certain tissue? And um, for example, the blood-brain barrier is an epithelium, and it's of course very important how quickly a drug uh, can um, get into the brain. So that's where this particular assay plays a major role. Do you have any questions on this? Okay. So then let's move on, and we talk about the. Um, gap junctions. So these gap junctions um, essentially allow communication between two adjacent cells. And you can see them uh, here, uh, basically at the bottom of this epithelium. So what they do is they make pores, and they allow the diffusion of molecules. And they basically limit um, the diffusion of molecules um, everything that is smaller than 1200 Daltons can diffuse through these gap junctions, but molecules that are larger cannot pass. So these small molecules um, include ions, but also small signaling molecules, such as uh, cyclic AMP, for example, uh, metabolites, etc. Okay, now here you can see such a gap junction in a transmission EM picture, and you see how the gap actually uh, is pretty long, several hundred nanometers. And it was originally called gap junction because it has this noticeable gap in between uh, the two membranes of about uh, two or three nanometers. Now, if you look at the same uh, at these gap junctions from uh, the other side, basically if you turn it by 90 degrees, um, you see that at low Mach, you see that it consists of these um, hexagonal particles. Okay? And you will see in a second what they are. So essentially, this is better illustrated in this cartoon here. Um, you can see that these gap junctions consist of um, so-called uh, connexon channels. And each connexon channel is uh, made up of two connexon hemichannel, right? Hemi means half, so you need two of these hemichannels to form a functional gap junction. And the structure of these um, gap junction proteins, the connexins, have been solved. And not just the structure of an individual protein, but essentially you have the whole assembly of such a, a gap junction uh, protein complex here. And if you look at it from the top, you see that you have six subunits of so-called connexins. And six of these connexins form a connexon hemichannel. All right? And then two of these hemi-channels from either side will form a functional gap junction. And you can also see very nicely how these six connexins form a, an aqueous pore in the middle of about 14 angstrom. And that is the pore through which these ions and small molecules uh, can diffuse. Now, some nerve cells actually have gap junctions. And remarkably, Some of these nerve cells use uh, transmission of ions through these gap junctions, which is about a thousand fold faster than the the transmission you get through uh, regular synapses. So it allows for very fast uh, communication. But they're also very important in non neuronal tissues, and I give you an example for that a little bit later. But for example, in the heart, the muscle cells are connected by these gap junctions which basically allows them to contract very synchronously and to generate the heartbeat. And uh, it also allows the spread of second messengers, such as cyclic AMP. And this is very important because you can basically activate one cell, and then that signal is going to spread very quickly, for example, in epithelium, and activate signaling pathways pretty much uh, uh, instantaneously in all of these cells. All right. So let's move on and talk about the um, anchoring junctions. And again, we have two different types here, namely the ones that connect cells to each other, just shown here between the cells, and the ones that connect the cells to the extracell matrix. now, the, the molecules that form these junctions are called the cell molecules or also cell receptors if they bind to matrix. Um, first, we have the um, caterins here, which essentially consist of uh, five repeats, that is for the classical caterins, five so called extracellular domains or EC domains. Um, and you can see how these caterins can form homophilic interactions with another criterion molecule on the other side of the cell. Um, Then we have so-called Ig superfamily cams, which consist of different domains, and they can also form uh, homophilic interactions. But um, in contrast to the criterion, they can also form heterophilically with another uh, cell surface uh, receptor on the other uh, side of the cell okay then on the right hand side you see we have two more families uh, of proteins of cell adhesion molecules namely the integrins and selectins and these are uh, exclusively uh, interact in a heterophilic manner okay so they bind to another a different type of receptor on uh, the other cell, or in the case of integrins, they bind to either an other a different receptor, or to an extracellular matrix proteins such, uh, such as laminin, fibronectin, or collagen. Now the selectins are somewhat different in that they bind to actually the sugar portion of so-called glycoproteins. We will talk about glycoproteins in uh, one of my uh, next lectures. Now these adhesions can be either uh, transient or weak. For example, when a cell has to migrate over an exocell matrix substrate, you don't want them to form very tight adhesions. Um, Or they can be very uh, stable and long lasting. So first we'll talk about the uh, regular cell adhesions which are uh, mediated by these cell molecules. And by the way, these cell as I mentioned before, they do not just float around in the cell, but they are basically uh, held in place by these uh, trans interactions with another molecule on the other side, and by connecting to uh, the actin cytoskeleton or intermediate filament cytoskeleton inside the cell. And I also want to point out that communication also occurs between the inside uh, of the cell and the outside, or vice versa. So these are not just uh, static junctions. Now, a very classic experiment to um, study cell cell adhesion was first uh, performed with different types of sponges. And you can see them here in this picture. They're called a microcyona and a But for simplicity, I will just call them math and half. Okay? So math and half uh, math here has this orange color and half has a yellow color, okay and you see how they basically form these nice um, uh, sponges here. Now science are cruel people, and what they did is they basically dissociated the cells of each of these sponges, so this they disrupted basically the attentiontions between the cells and then what they did is they, they took math and they took half cells and they put them together in culture. And surprisingly what happened is that you had cells from each individual sponge forming small aggregates. okay? And what was even more interesting is that they only basically adhere to one another, but not to cells from the other sponge type. So you can see that here because we only have small yellow Clumps and then these orange clumps, which correlate to either type of sponge. Okay. Now, this actually shows that these cells can aggregate with homophilic adhesions. Basically, each sponge has specific cell adhesion uh, uh, molecules at their surface, and these uh, cell adhesion molecules bind to each other in a homophilic manner. If they could bind in a heterophilic manner, in this case, you would see mixed clumps, right? But you don't. So, much later, researchers were then able to isolate these salutation molecules, and they used them to coat tiny little beads, and then they actually uh, used beads that had a certain color, so they coated uh, beads um, that were Um, In this experiment, they used beads, and they coated them only with the surface proteins from from math, okay? And some of these beads were red, some of these beads were green. So when they mixed them together, they formed homophilic adhesions, and that's why you see some yellow color here, right? Because green and red together gives yellow. So that again shows that the cells of these sponges carry homophilic adhesion molecules. Now, in another experiment, they now coded beads, red beads, with math protein and green beads with the half protein. And basically what you see is that these protein beads don't mix, but that only red beads cluster to each other and green beads cluster with each other. Is that clear or do you have questions on that? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Those numerical values? Oh, what they mean? Oh, those are, uh, that's the year when they actually did the experiment. So you can see there's a big gap here <laughs> to here. Yet, yeah, experiments take time. <laughs> okay, now here's another experiment which also demonstrates homophilic adhesions um, of uh, one of the classes that they isolate in these sponges, and those are the Caterians. So first they used cells uh, that actually don't express a caterin molecule. Okay? These are so-called L cells. And when they put them in culture, these cells did not adhere with one another. And what's also important is that this medium contained calcium. Okay? Now when they transfected these cells with a caterin construct, with actually e caterin uh, which makes the cells express that molecule at their surface, they repeated this experiment. And now, all of a sudden, the cells can cluster together. Okay? They form cell junctions, which are based on cadherins. Now, when they repeated the experiments, but now in the absence of calcium, you see that the cells no longer cluster together. So this experiment showed two things. First of all, that cadherins are homophilic cell adhesion molecules and that this interaction between caterins is calcium-dependent. Okay. And the reason that it is calcium-dependent actually is that uh, the extracellular domain, the structure of the extracellular domain of these caterins is uh, basically stabilized by calcium ions. All right, one can also look at these catherines uh, in cell culture, so here's a, another nice experiment that researchers did where they transfected um, cells with um, a caterin that has a fluorescent tag. It actually is a fusion between the caterin and the so-called green fluorescent protein, GFP, which you may have heard about in previous lectures. Anybody has a question on GFP or you all know what that is? Okay, so essentially you transfect cells with GFP tagged caterin. And then you see what happens. So first, these cells were grown at low density so that you can better observe them. And then what happens is that, basically, initially, the caterin is very diffusely uh, <laughs> distributed. And then it becomes concentrated at the junctions when these cells start uh, touching each other. And then eventually, as the cell density grows further, you can see how they basically become surrounded cells and how the carterians form these uh, cell adhesion junctions. So eventually, you can imagine that you get um, a nicely packed um, epithelial uh, sheet of cells uh, packed together by these uh, carterian interactions. All right. So what you just saw is that these cartierines can form very strong uh, adhesions between cells. And essentially, what happens in this case is that uh, individual cartierine domains first interact laterally within the membrane of one cell, and they form dimers or higher oligomers, such as tetramers. So these are all so-called um, cis interactions. Okay. And that may happen also in adjacent cells. And when these cells then touch each other, these caterians start interacting in trans. Um, and so you can imagine how these two types of interactions together lead to the recruitment of caterians to these cell adhesions. And basically, you combine many uh, weak interactions and then, because you cluster so many proteins, you basically form very strong interactions. So this can really lead to a process of zippering up between um, the two cells. So let's have a closer look at such a, an adherence junctions mediated by ecotierin. Um What scientists have found is that these Ecoterins, which have these five EC domains here, They actually interact with one another via their most distal catering uh, repeat up here. And then inside the cell, they connect via the cytoplasmic domain to uh, different types of adapter molecules, such as beta-catenin. And maybe some of you have heard uh, about beta-catenin before. Um, Beta-catenin and other adapters then, in one way or another, link these criterion molecules to the cytoskeleton. And as you can see, that's indicated by the question mark, that some of these interactions are still under investigation. Um, you see there are other adapter proteins here, such as alpha-catenin, uh, SO1, which is uh, a sonar occludence protein. And you will actually hear more about one of the colleagues of SO1, SO2, or also called tight junction protein 2, in, uh, a little bit later today. <clears throat> so, you have multiple adapter proteins such as beta catenin, which basically connect these caterine based junctions to actin filaments and to cytoskeleton. Okay, so again, here we have these adhesion molecules, and I just want to point out this is pretty simplified. We have many different adapters that can very much depend on the type of, speci- of the junction that you're looking at, what adapters you find here, and then they connect to the actin the skull. Well, another cell-cell junction which looks kind of similar to the adherence junctions are the so-called desmosomes. Okay? However, the desmosomes contain different types of proteins. But they also form cell-cell uh, junctions. So, first of all, these desmosomes contain specialized caterins. So, they're caterin based, but they are not the classical caterins such as E caterin, N um but they are specialized desmosomal caterins called uh, desmoglane and desmocolin. And you can see them right here in the middle of such a desmosome. Um, and then, what's also different is um, that they have uh, different sets of adapter molecules. They're called placoglobin, desmoplakin, placofilins, and they essentially form this huge uh, plaque here. And you can see how the desmosome connects to the cytoskeleton via these adapter proteins and also what's important here is that these desmosomes connect to intermediate filaments. So unlike the catherines which connect to the actin cytoskeleton. Uh, the classical caterins, the specialized cateurens, bind to specialized adapter proteins, and they connect to the intermediate filament uh, cytoskeleton. Okay. So just to give you a little break here, we have basically a real picture of such a desmosome, Again, you see these two uh, thick plaques here, and then you see the intermediate filaments which connect uh, to the plaque. This picture essentially shows the same thing. Again, we have the cytoplasmic clocks here. And there's some kind of gap in between the two membranes. And then here you would have the basic adapter proteins in the plaque. That's the electron-dense material here. And then these uh, intermediate filaments, which connect to them. And here you see a small false-colored image of the same thing. Here in pink, you have the two uh, plasma membranes. And then in blue, we have um, the uh, specialized cartierons, which uh, form the connection in this gap. <coughs> OK, so here's sort of a different picture, again, a cartoon of an epithelial cell that shows you the different type of junctions. Uh, the very top, the microvilli, then the tight junctions, um, and then here you have these adherence junctions, which as I said are based on classical adherence. Um They actually connect to uh, actin here, which together with myosin molecules forms basically a belt that goes all around the cell. And that helps to stabilize uh, the cell shape. Um, then we have the gap junctions here, which allow communication between the cells. Um, the desmosomes, which we just talked about, and another class of junctions, the hemidesmosomes, which we haven't talked about yet. Now, just want to point out here that both the desmosomes and the hemidesmosomes connect to this intermediate filament network inside such an epithelial cells. Okay. But the hemidesmosomes um, look somewhat different and also contain different molecules compared to the desmosomes. As the name implies, hemidesmosome It's basically just half a desmosome, okay? And it sits here at the very base of this epithelial cell and connects the cell to the underlying basal lamina. So that's the function of these hemidesmosomes. I also want to point out that you don't find all these junctions in every cell, okay? So depending on the cell type, you will encounter different types of junctions. And on the right side here, you see basically an EM picture of uh, such an epithelial sheet tight junctions, adherence junctions, desmosomes, gap junctions. All right? Now, <clears throat> these hemidesmosomes contain a specialized integrin molecule. And we'll talk a little bit about the integrins today, but I just want you to remember that this is a very specialized integrin, which you will only encounter in these hemidesmosomes, the beta-4, alpha-6 integrins. There are many other integrins. It's a very large uh, group of uh, cell surface receptors. Um, Again, this essentially shows the same thing. You have intermediate filaments which are connected to the plaque of the hemidesmosome. And then you have these integrin adhesion receptors, which bind to extracellular matrix proteins in the basal lamina. Okay. Okay, now I really want to focus on these integrin molecules. And you can already see this is actually a domain structure of the alpha-V beta-3 integrins, just to show you there are many different types of these integrins. Now these integrins, as shown in the structural model, they are comprised, uh, composed of uh, one alpha subunit and a beta subunit. OK, so a heterodimer. And these alpha and beta subunits, um, there are many different alpha and beta subunits, and they form this heterodimer, which then forms a ligand binding site for exocell matrix molecules and also other. Uh, cell surface receptors. So integrins do not always bind to extracell matrix molecules but they can also bind to other receptors. Okay, now in contrast to the uh, um, cell-cell junctions which are uh, mediated by cadherins and the specialized cadherins, in case of the desmosomes, these integrins form cell matrix interactions. Most of them do. And then you'll find them in focal adhesions, um, which we'll discuss at a later point. And you'll also find them in these hemidesmosomes. But as I said, in the hemidesmosomes, we only find this uh, specialized uh, criterion beta 4 alpha 6. So essentially, it would look like this. You would have this integrin molecule binds to an extracell matrix protein outside, for example, in the basal lamina in an epiphelial cell, and then it connects inside the cell uh, to intermediate filaments, and that would be the specialized situation for hemidesmosome, but other integrins will also connect to uh, actin inside the cell. So, what happens if you plate? a cell line on an extracellular matrix substrate such as collagen or laminin, essentially what happens is that the cell will spread on this matrix. And the way it does that is by uh, using integrin receptors to attach to the extracellular matrix molecules, okay? Now, in this picture, the integrin molecules have been labeled with an antibody in green. You can see how they form these adhesion uh, plaques, essentially. They're also called focal adhesions. And then in red, you see actin, which essentially connects to these integrin receptors on uh, the inside the cell. Now, the same thing is shown here, but in a transmission here, picture of such a focal adhesion, where you see that um, basically you would have the plasma membrane here. This is the exterior part of the cell. And in the um, exterior part, you essentially have the fibronectin fibrils, which is the substrate that the cell sits on. And then inside the cell, you have these actin filaments that connect to the integrin receptors. Unfortunately, you don't actually see the integrins themselves here in the plasma membrane. All right, so how do these integrins work? They um, to extracellular matrix proteins, and one of them is shown here, which is fibronectin. So fibronectin consists of multiple domains, and uh, right now you don't need to remember all these, but what I, point, what I want to point out is there's one domain within this large molecule uh, which contains um, a so-called RGD site. Okay. Now, anyone knows what RGD might stand for? Yes? That's correct. So, single letter code, right? Amino acids, you can abbreviate them, three letter code, single letter code. So, RGD, RGD basically stands for arginine, glycine, and aspartate. Okay, these are the three amino acids that you find in this motif, which are specifically recognized um, by the integrin ligand binding site here. And essentially, if you were to zoom in on this, uh, Domain here in the fibronectin molecule, you will see that there's this uh, s- uh, domain here, two domains, which one contains the synergy region, which basically is important for high affinity binding of the integrin, and then the RGD uh, site itself. And I will now show you in a structural. Uh, oh no! We first will talk about the, how these integrins bind to these RGDs and how we can actually study their binding in a cell culture assay. So what researchers did here is they essentially used a cell line that expresses a specific uh, integrin receptor. And they plated these cells on um, a petri dish, which was coated with different peptides. Okay? And the sequences of the peptides are shown here on the left side. Now, they plated um, the cells on different dishes. And basically, they always used the same peptide and increase the concentration of the peptide. And then they counted how many cells actually would stick to the dish. Okay? And you see that uh, for some of these peptides that the cells stick very efficiently, and you get these very nice binding curves. And then there are other peptides here where the cells don't seem to bind at all. Now, what all these peptides here have in common is that they have an RGD uh, motif. Okay. Whereas these peptides basically have scrambled versions or uh, contain different amino acids in that RGD motif, which completely disrupts the binding of integrins um, um, to uh, these peptides. What you can also see is that the binding increases with increasing concentration of these RGD peptides. So you can get these very nice binding curves, and you can actually determine the affinity of a certain integrin molecule to a specific peptide, so you can calculate a so-called KD value. You probably all remember what that is. It's basically a measure for the affinity of the receptor to the ligand. Um, Okay, so this is the structure of an integrin that has been deduced from X-ray crystallography and essentially, these integrin molecules, they can determine um, the strength of integrin-mediated interactions uh, in, in, a multiple, uh, in yeah, many different ways. So these integrins can exist in a so-called inactive form, where you see the molecules bent like this, um, and then in an active form where the integrin is basically extended and the cytoplasmic domains are separate. Okay. So again, this is a cartoon. This is essentially what the protein looks like uh, in a 3D, the 3D structure of the protein. And it consists of a beta propeller and a beta A domain, which together form the ligand binding site, all right? So what happens is, when you activate the molecule by uh, binding a ligand to this ligand binding site here, The molecule gets activated and the cytoplasmic domain gets separated, okay? This is so-called outside-in signaling of integrins because they bind to to a ligand outside of the cell and that ligand binding activates the molecule and then the signal is transduced into the cell because you have adapter proteins that bind to these integrins to the cytoplasmic domains and this conformational change in the cytoplasmic domain Is then going to transduce that signal into the cells via adapter molecules. All right. Now, people, researchers have found that there's also a so-called inside-out signal. So, as you can imagine, if you activate certain signaling pathways inside the cell, then adapter molecules may actually separate the cytoplasmic domain of the integrin, and therefore activate the integrin leading to its upright conformation. And now the integrin will have a higher affinity for a ligand. Okay, That's called an inside out uh, signaling mechanism. And integrins use both. So these are very complex molecules. And uh, researchers are really uh, working heavily on these molecules, because they play a lot of roles in different signaling pathways and in diseases such as cancer. So this kind of outlined on this slide. And no worries. I don't want you to know the details of these pathways. I just want you to know that via these different adapters that integrin can bind to and also different kinases, they can basically interact with many different signaling pathways. For example, there's crosstalk between the receptor tyrosine kinases, which you may have heard about, and their signaling pathways, and the pathways of integrins. For example, if you plate a neuronal cell line on extracellular matrix, such as laminin, um, then this uh, neuronal cell will also require the presence of a trophic factor to survive, but also to grow uh, an axon or a neurite on this extracellular matrix. And of course, this matrix, um, uh, the, the matrix signals are transduced into the cell by these integrin molecules, and you have the receptor tyrosine kinases, which would uh, transduce the signal of uh, the growth factors. And as you can see, these uh, two pathways basically connect. Okay. Now I want to just briefly summarize uh, the cell junctions that we've talked about today. So we talked about the adherence junctions, which are cell-cell junctions that contain classical cateureans, such as e-cateurean, n-cateurean, etc. and they connect to the actin filament. And they have various functions They can, they're important to maintain this, the shape of the cell, um, but as I also mentioned, they can also uh, uh, signal. So then we have the desmosomes and the hemodesmosomes. The desmosomes are formed by the specialized cateureans, uh, Desmosline, etc., and the amadesmosomes by these specialized integrins, alpha six beta four. Okay, they both connect to the intermediate filament network inside the cell, and in this way, especially in epithelial cell, they help to stabilize uh, the cell structure. Then we have the tight junctions, which contain these tight junction proteins: occludin, claudin, jams, triceladin It's not on the list here. And they connect to actin filaments. And as I said, they establish cell polarity in epithelial cells and prevent diffusion of these molecules through the cellular gaps. Uh, in contrast, the gap junctions actually enable cells to communicate with each other very rapidly by allowing the diffusion of small ions and molecules through these pores. And then in, in plants, actually we haven't talked about them, Uh, We have the plasma desmata, which is yet another type of junction similar to the gap junctions. All right, so now I want to switch gears and actually just talk briefly about a different type of epithelium that uh, my colleague Kaling Kwan and I are particularly interested in. And I will not ask you questions on what comes next in the exam. So just sit back, relax, enjoy, and hopefully learn something during that time. Um, So here you can see the um, sensor epithelium of the cochlea, which uh, is a very important structure and essentially allows us to uh, hear. So we can use this epithelium as a model system to really study the perception of sound. And we can also study the defects that occur in this process or in this tissue, which many times leads to hearing loss. So it's a very beautiful structure. And what you're looking at, and you may be already familiar with some of these structures, are um, the so-called sensory hair cells, which are labeled here in green. You see that they have different rows. And then in red, we actually have the, the neurons, the nerve cells, that innovate these hair cells and that conduct the signals uh, from the hair cells um, through these neuronal fibers uh, to the auditory centers in the brain. Okay. Now in blue, you just have all the nuclei, which are labeled with DAPI here. Um, so this is a cartoon of the, of the ear. You have the outer ear, middle ear, inner ear. And essentially, in the inner ear, you have the cochlea, which is our auditory sense organ. So, organ that allows us to hear. Then you have the vestibule, which is responsible for balancing, okay, the balance function. And if we look more closely, you can see that in the cochlea, you have this specialized epithelium that we just saw in the previous slide. And this epithelium has, is composed of the hair cells. And then we have similar types of cells, but not the same. These are called supporting cells. So just like you have neurons and glia in the brain, you basically have these hair cells here, which are the receptor cells, and then other cells that have a supporting function. So they are shown here again. You can see the, the cell body here of the hair cell, and on top of the surface of this epithelium, of this right, <coughs> and they have these hair bundles. And the hair bundle in the cell is basically the a mechanically sensitive organelle. So if when we hear sound, that will trigger vibrations in the ear. And these vibrations will ultimately deflect these bundles. And that, in turn, will uh, basically open ion channels, ion flow into the cells. And that will trigger a receptor potential in the cell, which is then further conveyed by the neurons to the brain. So that's how it works. Now, why do we study these hair cells? Because most forms of hearing loss are due to damaged hair cells. In fact, about 90% of all forms of hearing loss can be attributed to hair cell defects. So it's very important that we study hair cell function to learn more about the mechanisms underlying disease. With about 1 in 500 children that are born deaf, so it's a huge number, and about half of all these cases can actually be linked to genetic disease. And then uh, we also have a large group of adults, and it's thought that, that are affected by hearing loss, and it is thought that genetic uh, factors also play a very important role in these so-called uh, age-related forms of hearing loss. Now, hearing loss is caused by uh, a large group. And a very heterogeneous group of genes, and you can actually see them. Here, you see the different uh, chromosomal uh, locations of these genes on this slide. And uh, I just want to point out that you actually see three different types of connexins on this slide that are so called uh, deafness loci. Okay, that means mutations in these connexins will uh, lead to hearing loss in humans. Now, this is just a small assembly of genes, but it's actually believed that there are many hundreds of genes still out there that we haven't even found yet that, when mutated, would lead to hearing loss as well. And every year, researchers actually find uh, new genes. So we can essentially use uh, mouse genetics, or our biochemical studies. To study the function of these genes and then to figure out mechanisms of how we could uh, correct these genetic defects. Now, this slide just shows you that mutation in one particular Connexin 26 is actually the leading cause of hearing loss. Um, So, you see that in some countries, there's up to 40% of all uh, cases, uh, of all patients that have hearing loss, that have some mutation in Connexin 26. So, it's a huge number. And you see that there is some variability in uh, the prevalence of uh, connexin 26 mutations um, in uh, different countries. So you are already familiar with the structure of connexin 26. Uh, essentially, forms gap junctions. And you can see here on the right side uh, a cartoon of one connexin, one connexin molecule, I should say, connexin 26. And all these different mutations. So you see there are over 60 different mutations that have been mapped and found in different patients that all lead to hearing loss. And these mutations can have different effects. They can, for example, affect the expression of the protein per se. They could uh, affect the transport of these molecules to the cell membrane. They might also affect uh, the size of the pore. So they could basically pluck of the pore, and therefore prevent ions from flowing through the channel, Okay, So how would such a defect in connexin 26 lead to hearing loss? That's the big question. So what people have found is that in the ear, or in the cochlea, I should say, you have these two compartments here, uh, which are filled with, uh, basically, fluid. So one of the compartments contains these endolymph, which is very high in potassium. Then on the other side, you have the paralymph, which is low in potassium. So as you can easily imagine, there's a huge electrochemical gradient across the epithelium here, which contains the hair cells. And for the hair cells to be active, you actually need to have that gradient in place. Because when the hair cells become activated by sound, they open in ion channels, and potassium will flow into the cell. And that is actually what generates the receptor potential. So you have the hair cells, which take up potassium. And then they actually um, basically secrete the potassium into the paralymph. And you need a gap junction system to basically recirculate potassium back into the endolymph. Now, you can easily imagine that if the gap junction proteins fail, that this gradient will eventually disappear. Then the hair cells will no longer work, and people are deaf. So we also talked about tight junctions today, and you see again the set of genes that are linked to hearing loss, and one of these genes is called TGP2, tight junction protein 2. Yes? What uh, is Sensory hearing loss and non-sensory neural hearing loss. So essentially it means whether the mutation affects some neural structures or her- and hair cells or other cell types. Um, So tight junction protein 2 is an adapter molecule, which basically connects um, the tight junction uh, surface receptors to um, the cytoskeleton inside the cell. And very recently, people found a family that is afflicted with hearing loss, and in which hearing loss is inherited in a dominant manner. Um, And you can see here the affected individuals in this pedigree are highlighted by these solid circles. Okay. Now what they, what they did, and I, I don't want to go into the technical details, but essentially they compared uh, the genomes from affected individuals with unaffected individuals using so-called microsatellite markers. And you may have heard about these markers in the lecture from Ron Hart. Um, so by comparing these markers, they were able to map basically the, the, the location of the mutation in the entire human genome. And what they found is that it wasn't just a point mutation, but they had a whole uh, genomic duplication in the genome in these patients. And that's shown down here. So you see this tight junction protein has an exon intron structure like this. So the, the, the longer bars are the exons. And the thinner bars are the introns. And then you have the whole structure here but inverted right next to it. So we basically have a uh, genomic uh, duplication, but the duplication is inverted. So, how does that affect TGP2? Well, first of all, I don't know if you can see that, but they they looked at the expression of TGP2 in uh, normal tissue from the cochlea. So they labeled cross sections with an antibody against TGP2, and as expected, TGP2 are uh, localized to the junctions, the tight junctions between Uh, supporting cells and hair cells. Actually, in this picture you can see it better. Here you see in red the label for TGP2. And then in green you actually have the hair cells, which are labeled with a different antibody against an unconventional myosin. Myosin Myosin-6, which you may have heard, is also specifically expressed by these hair cells. Now, um, of course, people then want to know more about the mechanism that leads to hearing loss. So how does this genomic duplication inversion lead to hearing loss? So since they didn't encounter point mutation, they actually considered looking at the expression of the TGP2 molecule. And of course, it's not easy to um, get any tissue from, from human patients. So what they had to do is they actually looked at the expression of TGP2 in the lymphoblasts, so in the, in the blood cells. So they didn't look at expression in in the cochlea, but they did uh, expression analysis in lymphoblasts. So what they did is they isolated mRNA from uh, lymphoblasts of basically unaffected individuals of the family, and then patients that had the duplication. And then they ran a reverse transcription PCR. So essentially, they amplified uh, TGP2 by PCR, and they did it in a quantitative manner. So they did quantitative PCR to compare the levels of mRNA between uh, affected people and unaffected. And what they found is that the um, levels of TGP2 were highly elevated in the human patients. The next experiment they did, they basically looked at the protein level, whether protein levels would also differ in um, controls in patients. And that was the case. So you see that TTP 2 was highly elevated, also in uh, human patients here. So how exactly increased protein levels of TGP2 uh, lead to hearing loss is still unclear. But in experiments that I will not show today, they uh, also analyzed by RT-PCR the expression of, uh, of genes that are linked to apoptotic mechanisms. And they found that they were highly elevated in these uh, patients. So that basically means that TGP2 doesn't only play a structural role at tight junctions, but that it is also somehow involved in signaling. Because you found that in um, basically these patients which overexpress TGP2, signaling mechanisms become activated that uh, would ultimately lead to apoptosis. So the current hypothesis they have is that essentially TGP2 overexpression activates apoptotic proteins. And that would very likely lead to hair cell death. Now, we cannot ultimately uh, study that in human patients, but I'm sure that some research lab is currently working on generating a mouse model, for example, introducing a genomic duplication of TGP2 in a mouse, or simply uh, generating a transgene, which overexpresses TGP2 in a mouse, to be able to further study the underlying disease mechanisms uh, that lead to hearing loss here in human patients. Okay, I think I have to stop here and maybe talk more about the subject in the next lecture. Thank you for coming.